Hello, listeners. We're about to conclude Florence Sargent Hall's short story, The Ledge. You know, in searching for real masterpieces to bring you, and we do search, we often don't know what we're stumbling into. But let me tell you, we stumbled into it this time. This story we're about to conclude for you was initially rejected by Esquire and the New Yorker, and I understand why. But novelist John Updike considered it one of the century's very best, and I understand why. I am sorry to say it is based on actual events. Please be warned. It is not an easy ending. The whiskey had begun to warm him, but he was unprepared for the sudden blaze that flashed upward inside him from belly to head. He was standing looking at the shelf where the skiff was, only the foolish skiff was not there. For the second time that day, the fisherman felt the deep vacuity of disbelief. He gaped, seeing nothing but the flat shelf of rock. He whirled, started toward the boys, slipped, recovered himself, fetched a complete circle, and stared at the unimaginably empty shelf. Its emptiness made him feel as if everything he had done that day so far, his life so far. He had dreamed. What could have happened? The tide was still nearly a foot below. There had been no sea to speak of. The skiff could hardly have slid off by itself for the life of him, consciously careful as he inveterately was. He could not now remember hauling it up the last time. Perhaps in the heat of hunting, he had left it to the boy. Perhaps he could not remember which was the last time. Lord, he exclaimed loudly without realizing it, because he was so entranced by the invisible event. What's wrong, Dad? asked his son, getting to his feet. The fisherman went blind with uncontainable rage. Get back down there where you belong, he screamed. He scarcely noticed the boy sink back in amazement. In a frenzy, he ran along the ledge, thinking the skiff might have been drawn up at another place, though he knew better. There was no other place. He stumbled, half-falling, back to the boys who were gawking at him in consternation, as though he'd gone insane. Damn it! he yelled savagely, grabbing both of them and yanking them to their knees. Get on your feet! What's wrong? his son repeated in a stifled voice. Never mind what's wrong, he snarled. Look for the skiff! It's adrift! When they peered around, he gripped their shoulders brutally, facing them about. Downwind! He slammed his fist against his thigh. 
Lord, he cried, struck to madness at their stupidity. At last, he sighted the skiff himself, magically bobbing along the grim sea like a taller, a quarter of a mile to leeward on a direct course for home. The impulse to strip himself naked was succeeded instantly by a queer calm. He simply sat down on the ledge and forgot everything except the marvelous mystery. As his awareness partially returned, he glanced toward the boys. They were still observing the skiff, speechlessly. Then he was gazing into the clear young eyes of his son. Dad, asked the boy steadily, what do we do now? That brought the fisherman upright. The first thing we have to do, he heard himself saying with infinite tenderness, is think. Could you swim it? asked his son. He shook his head and smiled at them. They smiled quickly back, too quickly. A hundred yards, maybe, in this water. I wish I could, he added. It was the most intimate and pitiful thing he had ever said. He walked in circles round them, trying to break the stall his mind was left in. He gauged the level of the water. To the eye, it was quite stationary, six inches from the shelf at this second. The fisherman did not have to mark it on the side of the rock against the passing of time to prove to his reason that it was rising, always rising. Already it was over the brink of reason, beyond the margins of thought, a senseless measurement, no sense to it. All his life the fisherman had tried to lick the element of time by getting up earlier and going to bed later, owning a faster boat, planning more than the day would hold, and tackling just one other job before the deadline fell. If, as on rare occasions, he had had the grand illusion he ever really had beaten the game, he would need to call on all his reserves of practice and cunning now. He sized up the scant but unforgivable 300 yards to Brown Cow Island. Another 100 yards behind it, his boat rode at anchor, where, had he been aboard, he could have cut in a to plumb the profound and occult seas or a ship-to-shore radio on which in an interminably short time he would have heard his wife's voice talking to him over the air about homecoming. Could we have something so 
so somebody would see us? Couldn't we wave or something? The nephew suggested. The fisherman spun round. Load your guns, he ordered. They loaded as if the air had suddenly gone frantic with birds. I'll fire once and count to five. Then you fire, count to five. That way they won't just think it's only somebody gunning ducks. And we'll keep doing that. We've only just got two and a half boxes left, said his son. The fisherman nodded, understanding that from beginning to end, their situation was purely mathematical, like the ticking of the alarm clock in his silent bedroom. Then he fired. The dog, who'd been keeping watch over the decoys, leaped forward and yelped in confusion. They all counted off, fired the first five rounds by threes, and reloaded. The fisherman scanned first the horizon, then the contracting borders of the ledge, which was the sole place the water appeared to be climbing. Soon it would be over the shelf. They counted off and fired the second five rounds. We'll hold off a while on the last one, the fisherman told the boys. He sat down and pondered. What a trivial thing was a skiff. This one he and the boy had knocked together in a day. What a trivial thing was a gun manufactured for killing. His son tallied up the remaining shells, grouping them symmetrically in threes on the rock when the wet box fell apart. Too short, he announced. They reloaded and laid the guns on their knees. Behind thickening clouds, they could not see the sun going down. The water coming up was growing blacker. The fisherman thought, he might have told his wife they would be home before dark, since it was Christmas Day. He realized he'd forgotten about its being any particular day. The tide would not be high until two hours after sunset, when they did not get in by nightfall and could not be raised by radio. She might send somebody to hunt for them right away. Oh, he rejected this arithmetic immediately with a sickening shock, recollecting it was a two-and-a-half-hour run at best. Then it occurred to him that she might send somebody on the mainland who was nearer. She would think he had engine trouble. He rose and searched the shoreline, barely visible, then his glance dropped to the toy shoreline at the edges of the reef, the shrinking ledge, so sinister from a boat, grew dearer minute by minute as though the whole world he gazed on from horizon to horizon balanced on its contracting rim. He checked the water level and found the shelf a wash. Some of what went through his mind, the fisherman told to the boys. They accepted it without comment. 
If he caught their eyes, they looked away to spare him, or because they were not yet old enough to face what they saw. Mostly, they watched the rising water. The fisherman was unable to initiate a word of encouragement. He wanted one of them to ask him whether somebody would reach them ahead of the tide. He would have found it possible to say yes, but they did not inquire. The fisherman was not sure how much at their age they were able to imagine. Both of them had seen from the docks drowned bodies put ashore out of boats. Sometimes they grasped things and sometimes not. He supposed they might be longing for the comfort of their mothers and was astonished as much as he was capable of any astonishment except the supreme one. To discover himself wishing he had not left his wife's dark, close bed that morning. Is it time to shoot now? asked his nephew. Pretty soon, he said, as if he were putting off making good on a promise. Not yet. His own boy cried softly for a brief moment, like a man, his face averted in an effort neither to give nor show pain. Before school starts, the fisherman said, wonderfully detached. We'll go to town and I'll buy you boys anything you want. With great difficulty in a dull tone, as though he did not in the least desire it, his son said after a pause, I'd like one of those new 30-horse outboards. All right, said the fisherman and to his nephew. How about you? The nephew shook his head desolately. I don't want anything, he said. After another pause, the fisherman's son said, Yes, he does, Dad. He wants one, too. All right, the fisherman said again, and said no more. The dog whined in uncertainty and licked the boys' faces where they sat together. Each threw an arm over his back and hugged him. Three strays flew in and sat com companionably down among the stiff-necked decoys. The dog crouched, obedient to his training. The boys observed them listlessly. Presently, sensing something untoward, the ducks took off, splashing the wave tops with feet and wingtips into the dusky waste. The sea began to make up in the mounting wind, and the wind bore a new and deathly chill. The fisherman, scouring the somber, dwindling shadow of the mainland for a sign, hoped it would not snow. But it did. First a few flakes, and then a flurry, and then storming past horizontally. 
The fisherman took one long, bewildered look at Brown Cow Island, 300 yards dead to leeward, and got to his feet. Then it shut in, as if what was happening on the ledge was too private, even for the last wan light of the expiring day. Last round, the fisherman said austerely. The boys rose and shouldered their tacit guns. The fisherman fired into the flying snow. He counted methodically to five. His son fired and counted. His nephew, all three, fired and counted. Four rounds left. You've got one left, Dad, his son said. Fisherman hesitated another second and then fired the final shell. It's pathetic report, like the spat of a pop gun, whipped away on the wind and was instantly blanketed in the falling snow. Night fell all in a moment to meet the ascending sea. They were now barely able to make one another out through driving snowflakes, dim as ghosts in their yellow oil skins. The fisherman heard a sea break and glanced down where his feet were. They seemed to be wound in a snowy sheet. Gently, he took the boys by the shoulders and pushed them in front of him, feeling with his feet along the shallow sump to the place where it triangulated into a sharp crevice at the highest point of the ledge. Face ahead, he told them. Put the guns down. I'd like to hold mine, Dad, begged his son. Put it down said the fisherman. The tide won't hurt it. Now, brace your feet against both sides and stay there. They felt the dog, who was pitch black, running up and down in perplexity between their straddled legs. Dad, said his son, what about the pooch? If he had called the dog by name, it would have been too personal. The fisherman would have wept. As it was, he had all he could do to keep from laughing. He bent his knees, and when he touched the dog, he hoisted him under one arm, and the dog's belly was soaking wet. So they waited, marooned in their consciousness, surrounded by a monstrous tidal space, which was slowly, slowly closing them out. In this space, the periwinkle beneath the fisherman's boots was king. While hovering airborne in his mind, he had an inward glimpse of his house as curiously separate, like a June mirage snow, rocks, seas, 
wind. The fisherman had lived by all his life. Now he thought he had never comprehended what they were, and he hated them, though they had not changed. He was deadly chilled. He set out to ask the boys if they were cold. There was no sense. He thought of the whiskey and sidled backward, still holding the awkward dog, till he located the bottle underwater with his toe. He picked it up squeamishly, as though afraid of getting his sleeve wet, worked his way forward, and bent over his son. Drink it, he said, holding the bottle against the boy's ribs. The boy tipped his head back, drank, coughed hotly, and then vomited. I can't, he told his father, wretchedly. Try, try, the fisherman pleaded, as if it meant the difference between life and death. The boy obediently drank, and again he vomited hotly. He shook his head against his father's chest and passed the bottle forward to his cousin, who drank and vomited also. Passing the bottle back, the boys dropped it in the frigid water between them. When the waves reached his knees, the fisherman set the warm dog loose and said to his son, Turn around and get on my shoulders. The boy obeyed. The fisherman opened his oilskin jacket and twisted his hands behind him through his suspenders, clamping the boy's booted ankles with his elbows. What about the dog? The boy asked. He'll make his own all right, the fisherman said. He can take the cold water. His knees were trembling. Every instinct shrieked for gymnastics. He ground his teeth and braced like a colossus against the sides of the submerged crevice. The dog, having faithfully lived as though one of them for 11 years, swam a few minutes in and out around the fisherman's legs, not knowing what was happening, and left them without a whimper. He would swim and swim at random by himself, round and round, in the blinding night. And when he'd swum routinely through the paralyzing water, all he could, he would simply, in one incomprehensible moment, drown. Almost. The fisherman waiting out infinity, he almost envied him his pattern. Freezing seas swept by, flooding inexorably. 
up and up as the earth sank away imperceptibly beneath them. The boy called out once to his cousin. There was no answer. The fisherman, marveling on a terror without voice, was dumbly glad when the boy did not call again. His own boots were long full of water. With no sensation left in his straddling legs, he dared not move them. So long as the seas came sideways against his hips and then sideways against his shoulders, he might balance no telling how long. The upper half of him was what felt frozen. His shoulders, his legs, were now disengaged. Yes, his legs were disengaged from his nerves and his will. He came to regard this part of his body quite scientifically. They were the absurd, precarious axis around which reeled and surged universal tumult. The waves would come on and on. He could not visualize how many tossing reinforcements lurked in the night beyond. Inexhaustible numbers. And he wept in supernatural fury at each because it was higher till he transcended hate and took them swaying like a convert one by one as they lunged against him and then away aimlessly into their own undisputed wild realm from his hips upward the fisherman stretched to his utmost, as a man does, whose spirit reaches out of dead sleep. The boy's head, none too high, must be at least seven feet above the ledge, though growing larger every minute. It was a small, light life. The fisherman meant to hold it there, if need be, through a thousand tides. By and by, the boy slumped on the head of his father and asked, Is it over your boots, Dad? Not yet, the fisherman said. And then through his teeth, he added, But if I fall, you kick your boots off and you swim for it, downwind to the island. You, the boy finally asked. The fisherman nodded against the boy's belly. We won't see each other, he said. The boy did for the fisherman the greatest thing that can be done. He may have been too young for perfect terror, but he was old enough to know there were things beyond the power of any man. All he could do, he did, by trusting his father to do all he could and asking nothing more. The fisherman, rocked to his soul by a sea, held his eyes shut upon the interminable night. Is it time now? The boy said. The fisherman could hardly speak. Not yet, he said.
Not just yet. As the landmass pivoted towards sunlight, the day after Christmas, a tiny fleet of small craft converged offshore like iron fillings to a magnet. At daybreak, they found the skiff floating, unscathed off the headland, half full of ducks and snow. The shooting had been good, as someone hearing on the nearby mainland the previous afternoon had supposed. Two hours afterward, they found the unharmed boat adrift, five miles at sea. At high noon, they found the fisherman at ebb tide, his right foot jammed cruelly into a glacial crevice of the ledge beside three shotguns. His hands tangled behind him in his suspenders and under his right elbow a rubber boot with a sock and a live starfish in it. After dragging unlit depths all day for the boys, they towed the fisherman home in his own boat at sundown. And in the frost of evening, mute with discovering purgatory, laid him on his wharf for his wife to see. She somehow standing on the dock, as in her frequent dream, gazing at the fisherman, pure as crystal on the icy boards, a small rubber boot still frozen under one clenched arm, saw him exaggerated beyond remorse or grief, absolved of his mortality. Good night.